So today we're going to take a look at a portion of another letter from John, and that's 1 John, uh, and we're going to look at chapter 1. And so if you need a Bible, um, just raise your hand. We've got Bibles to share for this morning. And so as you're paging to 1 John 1, um, I'd encourage you to do that. I just want to set the stage with a, a story. So it starts actually with the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul uh, went on a missionary journey and he went to a city called Ephesus. And in Ephesus, he set up a, a shop and he um, connected with people and he shared the gospel message with them and he formed the first churches there in the area. And uh, as people were becoming believers in Jesus Christ, some of them kept their old ways of belief and their old ways of living life. And that began to change how the gospel was being understood and lived out. It started to twist things. And over time, it started to create conflicts. And so after a while, uh, Paul had to come back on another journey and he, he had to correct faulty doctrine in the city of Ephesus. And the conflicts there broke his heart. And so this is what is recorded in Acts chapter 20 about what he said to the elders of the Ephesian church. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I have never stopped warning each of you, night and day, with tears. This is just a heartbreaking thing for the Apostle Paul as they're, they're duking it out over their beliefs. And after this time, he sent Timothy to lead the churches there and to ensure the teaching of right doctrine. But this conflict continued to grow and escalate. And it became too much for Timothy. And so the Apostle John traveled to Ephesus and to lead the churches there. And he wrote his gospel to correct what was going wrong there. And so his, his gospel is dealing with themes in direct opposition to what was being taught by this other group. So unfortunately, what this other group saw of Jesus, what, what they came to believe was that God, who is spirit, could not inhabit material flesh. So the incarnation could not be a possibility. They also believed that it wasn't faith in Jesus that saved us. It was actually a secret knowledge that we maintained and we saved ourselves. <laughs> They actually became, uh, they came to a point where they even believed that God was not a loving father, but a tyrant, and that Jesus' secret knowledge was actually being used to save us from God. You can see how twisted this had become. So to them, Jesus didn't deliver us. He only delivered them a message. And so this fighting between these two groups um, needed, to be, uh, needed to be corrected. And so John comes and he sets the record straight about who Jesus is. He's the Logos, the word that God even spoke at the very beginning that created the world. 
And here the word has come and entered into the world, the second person of the Trinity. He took on human flesh to stand in our place and overcome our sin so that we could be reunited to a good God who loves us. But this group responded angrily and they left fellowship to create their own churches. And so John also wrote a couple of letters, 1st and 2nd John, specifically to address the problems with their theology and their actions. And so some think that 1st John was written by this group as this loving plea to, to call this group back to unity with the body and with God the Father and God the Son to engage with true doctrine once again. And there's this story about John that comes to us from a church leader named Jerome. And he said that he got it uh, from an earlier writing from Clement that no longer survives. But he says that, that John got to be a very old man in Ephesus. And so he, he got to the point where he was so weak he had to be carried into the church services. And he was so weak that all he could say on uh, in these meetings was little children love one another. And this became his repeated plea. And finally, some of the people there kind of got a little annoyed by this. And they said, well, teacher, why do you tell us the same thing week in and week out? And John replied, because it is the Lord's commandment. And if you can keep it, it will suffice. As we've learned in John's gospel, Jesus has called us to emulate the love that the Father and the Son have for one another. That's our model for how we interact with each other in the body. That love is based on faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. There's no other way to muster it up. We can't just create love by pulling ourselves up by the bootstraps. This is something that the Lord has to do in us through his Holy Spirit. And that love then changes how we approach life, how we approach relationships with one another. And so what we see then, because of the Spirit's work in us, is that if we are living and loving sacrificially, it's an evidence that God is working within us. So in the letter of 1 John, he describes it this way, and this is out of chapter 3. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity for them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in God's presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. And dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him, and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know by the spirit that he's given us. So with all of that in mind, 
that backstory, let's take a look at 1 John 1, 1 through 4. And let's listen for these elements that we just talked about from this context, from that text. Hopefully you'll get a sense of that call back to right doctrine and unity and fellowship. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. So the way that, that John puts all of this together is a rhetorical device, and we're going we're gonna to get into that in a moment. But it can be kind of confusing for an English reader. It's probably great Greek, but it's hard in English. And so... We can approach this by sort of flipping it around, and it makes a little bit more sense. And we can do that without damaging the scriptures. So, um, so we would start with verse 4. Make our joy complete through having fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. But then it leaves us with this question, how is that fellowship achieved? It's through belief. Now, that's a word that isn't present, but it's implied. And we'll, we'll look at that too. And so we know that it's implied by all of these doctrinal assertions and by this constant call that John is making. And so it's an argument that's meant to convince and to call people back to right relationship with Jesus and with the Father and with the meeting body of believers. So let's dig into what John was saying. So we're going to start with verse 4 in our flip here. Make our joy complete through having fellowship with us. So we can see that this is an invitation from the apostle and from those who have remained as part of the apostolic faith. They've believed the message that was brought by the apostles, by eyewitnesses. And so that's why we have we and our and us in there. And so this is being sent to the faction who have broken fellowship and who have gone after false doctrines. And it's calling them back to recommit to right doctrine and to unity with the body. Fellowship. And that word fellowship, we sometimes uh, use it in sort of this Christianese sort of way of saying, uh, it's a great time to hang out. And we love hanging out. I, I love hanging out with people. Anytime you want to hang out and have a cup of coffee, I'd love that. But this is speaking to something far deeper. It has some specific things in mind. And so in scripture, we have a biblical idea of what fellowship really means. We're, we're going to look at a couple of different passages here and see what this means and the themes that come out in them. So we're going to start with Acts 2, 42 and 44 through 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. All the believers were together and had everything in common. 
They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need, and every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to them daily those who were being saved. And Paul says in Romans chapter 12, 3 through 6, Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace that's been given each of us. And then the author of Hebrews, in chapter 10, 23 through 25, says, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day, it means the day of the Lord, approaching. So the model that we see of biblical fellowship has themes. It starts with our faith in God. And that faith is something that we share together as a community. We have unity in the faith that we profess. And that faith leads to a change in our lives. It leads to living grace and love and compassion for one another. And we turn and we make that real by caring for one another physically and spiritually as a body of Christ. And so this unity or this fellowship is something very important to the body. And it should remind us of Jesus' words that the two greatest commandments are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. A return to that kind of fellowship should make the joy of the church complete. So the, this word for complete has the sense of being fulfilling or to be filled up or even to be satisfied. You could even um, put in the Hebrew word shalom. It's a fullness. And what he's saying by phrasing it this way is that their joy isn't full. Not yet. It isn't fulfilling. It, they are not satisfied yet because they're missing those who have gone out from them. And so he's calling them back. Fill us up. Fill up the joy by coming back. So one of the things that I've noticed is sometimes we believers can create these dividing lines. And whether it's based on doctrine or maybe it's based on our preferences, but it's a justification for us to divide from one another. But what we're seeing here is not that we, we shouldn't um, focus on good doctrine. We should. So please don't hear that from me. We want to focus on good, solid, biblical doctrine. But the way that we interact with one another on account of it is important too. 
We should want to maintain what is right and true, but it's, this is an invitation from John that tells us that, that when people have gone away, when they've created these dividing lines, we should call out for them to come back. We should be heartbroken over those who've rejected the truth or those who have broken fellowship. Come back. Come back to the truth. Come back to the unity of the body. Our fellowship is too important. So the Apostle Paul says, Leave no debt outstanding. Accept the continuing debt to love one another. So let's not be satisfied with leaving things broken. Let's always lean in to calling back to unity and healing what's broken through faith in Jesus Christ. And this is, without a doubt, a doctrinal confession to those who were uh, teaching differently. God is Father and Son at once. The Son does not oppose the Father, but has full fellowship and purpose with him. And those who believe it have fellowship with the Father and the Son through God the Spirit. So a couple weeks ago, we heard Jesus pray in John 17, I pray for those who will believe in me through their message, the message of the disciples. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought together to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, to see my glory, the glory that you've given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. So this is an invitation, and it's not a self-justification. So it would be a problem if we were just to see... A, a, a batch of doctrines being laid out and, and making a division. Well, we believe this, you believe that. No, we're holding on, we're clinging on to this doctrine we believe and we are calling you back to it. It's a pleading to come back and believe true things about God the Father and God the Son, to acknowledge that real relationships are built on a foundation of truth and trust. A doctrinal confession is not about making things up about God. It's not about coercion. It's not about winning an argument. Doctrinal confession is about us recognizing truths about God from his word, what he's revealed to us, and encouraging others to come and view that together with us. Come, see Christ. Come, be part of the believing body. It's about recognizing these true things. It's a call to unity with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and Jesus' bride, the church. In the end, it's about winning a brother or a sister. Now, we don't see the word believe, anywhere here in this section of scripture, but it's certainly there. It's implied. 
John appeals to his own and to other apostles' eyewitness accounts and experience of Jesus. He says, what we have heard, what we have seen, what we have looked at and what our hands have touched, we have seen it and we testify to it. So in these four short verses, he uses three different terms, which he repeats several times, to indicate that Jesus appeared on earth and was seen and experienced by people. That is a doctrinal claim. Jesus came and took on flesh. But it's not just dry doctrine. It's also something experiential that we're calling We're called to be in awe of. It's something to be shared. I know we've heard, we've been to Christmas celebrations. We've heard the message. But think about it with fresh eyes. That the God of the universe stepped into human flesh. That he entered into our reality that he took on the punishment that didn't belong to him, it belonged to us, that is mind-blowing. That is astounding. Some might say it's unbelievable. But it's the truth. It's what we stand on. It's what we've just acknowledged in the last week at Christmas time. It's what we celebrate when we take communion that Jesus took on flesh, and because of that, he took on our punishment. After this section of scripture, John is going to continue in his letter to talk about the results of belief, a changed life of obedience and love. And so there are these glaring places of absence where the word believe, we think, would just be smacked in there over and over and over again. He's building argument after argument and implication after implication. All is an intentional way of inviting the the reader of this message, this letter, to consider what has actually occurred and what people have experienced of Christ so that they will believe. And so he finally gets to it in 1 John chapter 5 where he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you can know that you have eternal life. The whole purpose of this entire letter is to call back people to see these things and appreciate them and come to saving faith that they will know that they have eternity with God the Father and God the Son. And so as he's doing this, he he also develops some doctrinal statements about who Jesus is, what he's accomplished. So at the end of verse 1, John calls Jesus the word of life. This word of life from the beginning was with the Father. And this should remind us of the first lines of John's gospel. So maybe you remember that from when we started up um, our, our gospel of John series here. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. 
In both John 1 and 1 John 1, this word is the pre-incarnate Christ. It's Jesus. He is the very divine agent who created the world. He made us. He gave us purpose. And he gave us a life to live that purpose out into the world. Jesus is, is the one who has made all things. And he's done it in a way that is good and in a way that is loving. This is standing in direct opposition to what was being taught by this other group. That the material was actually necessarily bad and God could have nothing to do with it. At least not a good God. And John's saying, no, this creation is good. It comes from a good God who loves us. And John calls Jesus the eternal life. Again, looking back to John's gospel, we get clarity. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. In one of Jesus' I am statements in John 10, Jesus compares himself to a gate, the gate of salvation to God. And he says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And he also says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. I lay my life down for the sheep. And so the eternal life that we seek is found in Jesus through faith in him. In faith that he laid down his life on our behalf. It's not found in Ephesian secret knowledge. It's not found in the work of our own hands. We cannot create our salvation. It is only by trusting in what's already been done for us. And these are things that are important for the Ephesians and for us to believe. You know the joy and the love that we experienced last week as we were gathering here and praising the Lord at Christmas time. It was such a beautiful time of singing and of recognizing the truths of what Jesus has done for us. And that's what we are being called to all the time, is the celebration, and it's a celebration over what has been done for us. The breakthrough of God into our world in the Christmas incarnation has view of Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection in mind. It's why he came. And so this is a call to believe that Jesus is our eternal life. It only comes through him. So these are the things that John and the apostolic church were proclaiming to those who had left. And in four short verses, we see the word proclaim used three times here. And then John adds testify and we write this. So he's using all of these things placing a great importance on sharing these doctrinal truths about who Christ is, what he's accomplished for us. It's calling that group to repent and to come back and to place faith in Christ. And the only way that people will come to faith in Christ is through the gospel message. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 10. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
How then can they call on the one that they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom that they haven't heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So John is proclaiming the good news to these people who have divided from them. And we've been truly blessed to be part of a unified body where we get to gather together and we get to worship the Lord and we get to sing out our praise to our God and we get to love one another in community. That is so important. We need to remember that our joy, as great as it is when we gather together, is actually not complete. It's not complete yet. It's not full yet. Because we all know people who have not heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. We know people who have heard the gospel and who have rejected it. We know people who have accepted parts of it but have broken or twisted doctrine that has led them away. And so what we're seeing here is this call to encourage them to come back. Paul says it this way in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. 1 John 1, like 2 Corinthians 5, is not written to be a dry theological doctrinal treatise. It's written as the pleading of a humble man who has been with these people who have left. Think about the pain of when somebody exits. We've all sensed that. We've all felt that. Here is a man who loves them and longs for them to return. So as we head into a new year, 2024, it's helpful to be introspective. This passage ties up so many of the concepts that we've been talking about over the last few months and brings these things together and is helpful for us to be thinking through what do we believe? How are we being unified? And so there's some questions that come from the text that I'll just list out that I think might be helpful for us. Do we believe that Jesus is God? Do we believe in the incarnation that God took on flesh on our behalf? Do we believe that Jesus brought us eternal life through his sacrificial death? Have we experienced the love of fellowship with the Father and the Son and the church through the Holy Spirit. 
If so, has the love of Jesus compelled us to seek every opportunity to proclaim those beautiful things to those that we know that are not on the same page? If we find any of these things lacking, the call stands for us. Come, look on Christ crucified. Come, be a part of us as we seek fellowship with the Father and the Son together as a body. John's telling us that if these people find true fellowship with God and other believers, it will make his joy, the church's joy, our joy, complete. And so in 2024, why don't we seek that joy together? Let's seek a joy that's been made complete through faith in Christ Jesus and the fellowship that we receive through the Father, the Son, the Spirit, and his bride, the church.